Vincent Werbeck's Derby. my welcome to Andy's. If you don't know who I am, my name is Phil. I'm the lead minister here at St. Wildbergs. It's great to be with you this evening. Now, last week, Andy kicked us off in our series on Philippians, and we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And I get the privilege of continuing that journey. We're going to be doing Philippians for the next eight, nine weeks together as we journey through. And what we want to remember as we dig into this letter, that this was written by a real person, to some real people in a real place at a real time. This is not some made-up letter. This is it's almost like a, a missionary's thank you letter to a group of people who have supported him, and he wants to write to them and pour out his heart to them. And so we think that this letter is going to speak to us now, some 2,000 years later. It's going to speak into our lives as we seek to grow and follow Jesus to learn more about who he is, so it will speak into our lives. So that's why we're in Philippians. Now, some of you may have been here on the 30th of December, because I said something slightly foolish on the morning of the 30th of December, which was that I announced that we were going to read Philippians as a whole church. We're going to spend a whole lot of time in Philippians. But I also said that I'm going to learn it. And um, only one other person, Dan, um, said that he was going to learn it. Um, then I realized that Dan's actually an actor, so he has a bit of a head start on me. <laughs> but I've been trying, just, just wanted to try a new kind of spiritual discipline of learning big chunks of Scripture. So I've given myself the task, and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to do it, is to learn the whole of the letter of Philippians off by heart. So I'm going to try and speak out this evening, what I've remembered so far. Now, a couple of caveats, just so that you understand. I am not an actor. I am a 40-year-old, um, middle-aged man who has never acted a day in his life. So I'm, I'm new to this. But I've enjoyed the spiritual discipline of trying to learn this. I've gone over and over and over the text. I have paced around my room, speaking it out, trying to get it right. Now, also... What's interesting is Paul, when he first wrote um, these letters, when he wrote most of his letters, actually we think, scholars might tell you, that he dictated these letters. Paul talks in various other places about the fact that he had a thorn in the flesh, that something that was always going wrong that we'd, he'd never get healing for. And it's suggested that that was about his eyesight. And so it's suggested that he, had, he dictated these letters to people who they wrote them down for him. Because in some of the letters it says at the end, look, I'm signing this with my own hand, or looking for someone, a grown adult, to, to say. Um, my two, uh, not two-year-old, she's not two anymore. My six-year-old daughter might say something like that. But... Um, a grown man probably wouldn't. So anyway, just imagine, if you will, that Paul's dictating the letter. And I bet when he dictated it, he kind of went, oh, that line's not right. I might change it and make it this instead. So if I don't quite get it fully right, don't judge, is basically what I'm saying. Let's see if we can do this. The words will come up on the screen. I'm not looking. When I did this this morning, it didn't go well. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Some of you are laughing at me already. I'm going to continue... It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, we all share in God's grace. You all share in God's grace with me. I think that sounds a little bit better. God can testify that I long for you in my heart with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this is my prayer that your love will abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ Jesus, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become known throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some people preach Christ out of envy and jealousy, but others do so out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I've been placed here to defend the gospel. The former do so out of selfish ambition, not sincere, supposing to stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? What is important is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For through your prayers and God's provision of the Holy Spirit, I know that what has happened to me will be for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will not be be in any way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage For now and always, that Christ may be exalted in my body, whether I live or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for me, for you, that I remain. Confident that I will remain. I will continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. That my being with you again, 
your boasting may abound, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound on account of me. That's as much as I've got. I literally don't know the next word. Um, But I want to commend that to you. Learn scripture. Learn big chunks of it. Because it has gone so deeper within me than anything I've ever tried before. So, um, as I said, I'm not an actor. I don't know what I'm doing. I just made it up. I, I read it. I read it. I read it. I read it. And it's gone in. So, I commend that to all of you. Let's pray. And we'll jump in. Loving Father, we thank you for this incredible letter. We thank you that Paul was writing to encourage the church. And we ask now that you will encourage us. That we will learn truth. That won't just stay in our heads, but will seep down into our hearts and get worked out into our lives. We ask, Lord, that you will speak to us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, a couple of years ago, I was hanging out with a kind of slightly older friend of mine, and I was freaking out, because the realization that I had three daughters was dawning on me. And uh, he has two daughters and a son, and I was trying to ask him, come on, how, how do you, how, how's this going to work? Because, you know, I don't, I don't understand girls. I still don't understand girls. I don't think I ever will understand girls. And um, what, give me some fatherly tips. What can I do to help? And he said, Phil, you've got to learn to date your daughter. Date your daughters. And he would take his daughters out one, one, one week, and then two weeks later, he would take the next one out. And he would normally take them out for breakfast in the morning. And he said to them, in, I, I'm doing this. You can pick wherever you want to go for breakfast, uh, but I, on the condition that in this moment, in this time, you can tell me anything you want to say. This time is just for me and you. And so I thought, that sounds great. And then he said, well, and actually, Phil, what you're also wanting them to learn, your daughters to learn, is what, what a fun date looks like. That actually, here's a guy who will care for them and listen to them and look after them. And, and you're modeling something to your daughters. And I like, I like the sound of that. Even though my daughters are not going to date until they're 30, I like the sound of that. <laughs> and um, so I, I, every now and again, I try to do this. I try to take my daughters out. Um, and we try to go and have these fun times. And in, genuinely, what they see it as is McDonald's. And so they love it. Uh, and I love it because I get to spend some time. And so on Friday night, I took my eldest daughter, Zoe. Um, she's not here this evening. You, none of you need to tell her this story. That's all I'm going to say. This is just amongst school. Uh, everything was great. We were driving to Costa. She, it was everything that I wanted it to be. She started pouring out her heart about kind of teenage angst. What it, friendship issues amongst her group of friends at school as a 12-year-old. And I'm thinking, this is exactly what I wanted to be able to talk to her about. This is brilliant. Everything's going well. We go into Costa. She gets a hot chocolate, of course, with cream and marshmallows. Of course she does. She even gets a blueberry muffin. She is having a whale of a time. I'm thinking, this is good. We're all going great. We sit down. I have my little coffee. And she gets out a pack of playing cards. And she's like, come on, Daddy, let's play cards. I'm like, this is brilliant. Everything is good. Now, we start playing uh, the game Slam. I don't know how many of you know the game Slam. It's kind of where you just have to go really quickly and put one card on top of the other and kind of get there. And um, it kind of ebbs and flows between the two people. And, um, well, 
She's 12 now, right? So no longer does daddy play to lose. She has to earn the right to win, right? This is, she needs to understand that this is an important growth moment for her. And so everything is going really well in our daddy-daughter date time until daddy starts winning. And when daddy starts winning, we go from the happiest child you've ever seen to the most miserable, grumpiest child ever. So much so that she starts kicking me under the table with her school shoes on. And I'm like, will you stop that? But the more upset she gets at losing the more I want to win, which might need some hours on a psychiatrist's couch to work that one out. But um, I'm like, no, she needs to understand. She needs to learn that life isn't just about always being happy and getting your own way and you winning. I, you need to learn what life is about, Zoe. Come on, let's go for this. And so, um, so I win. And she's miserably upset. And I sat there and I think, she, Zoe's teaching us something. Like we live in a world where we, you know, we can see what's going on there with a the 12-year-old playing cards, and we can think, oh, it's a little bit funny. Or we can go, actually, what Zoe is showing us is what we have all taken into life with us, which is that we are only happy when things go our way. Think about it. We start living out of this mindset that says, I'll be happy, you fill in the blanks, when I get my A-levels, when I get to university. When I get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, when I get married, I'll be happy when I get the job that I really want. I'll be happy when I've got some money. I'll be happy when I have kids. I'll be happy when my kids have left home. Whatever applies to you. Or maybe it's a little bit more kind of hidden than that. I'll be happy when they say they're sorry, when they admit they've got something wrong. I'll be happy when that colleague leaves because it will make my life easier. I'll be happy when my neighbor chops down that tree. I'll be happy when that relationship ends. Whatever it may be, we have started to teach ourselves or we have started to speak out the, the idea that we will only be happy if or when. And I want to tell you some truth this evening. If you are dependent upon your external circumstances to be happy, you will never be truly happy. If you can't be happy in the midst of pain and grief and loss and things going the wrong way, you will never fully be happy. So that mindset of I'll only be happy if has to end. Jesus when he came and spoke to his disciples, when he was walking around for three years teaching everybody, he never at any point says, if you follow me, you'll be happy. That was never a promise of Jesus. In other words, it's not about being happy if or when, but the kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy. Joy is the promise of following after Jesus. And joy is very different from happiness. Joy is a something that sits deep within us. Joy is based on something meaningful and true and real. Joy wells up from within. Happiness is just what happens on the external. 
So what does it mean for us? How can we live joy-filled lives? Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, uses the word joy in some format 16 times. This is a letter filled with joy that he is writing to the church in Philippi. So what can we learn from this? Well, I've got four P's, four things beginning with P that help us as we think about what it means for us, some of the essentials from Philippians 1 verses 12 to 26 for living joyfully. The first P is perspective. If we are going to live joy-filled lives, we need a new perspective to live by. We can so easily get frustrated by the small things in life. A couple of weeks ago, I went away and I met up with a load of people who are leading similar churches to this, churches that have been planted into city centers out of HTB. And um, lots of people were asking me, so how's it going in Derby? What's going on? I, I, it must be amazing. And if I'm honest with you, a lot of the time I said, oh, I'm so frustrated. The building wasn't done yet. We've been spending 18 months in it and it's not quite got to where we want it to be. And there are things in the church that I like, I'm really long for us to get to that place that we can do that or we can do this. And, I, and it's the detail of the stuff that's not quite right. And it felt like almost everybody I spoke to kind of verbally slapped me around the face and went, yeah, but Phil, look at the big picture. Look at the big story that's going on at St. Welberg's because we hear you've got almost 300 people there and we hear that people are coming to faith and we hear that community is being... If we're going to live joy-filled lives, we need to a big perspective rather than a small perspective. We need to stop getting focused in on our frustrations and our little pain, and we need to start seeing the bigger picture for what is going on. The big picture of what's going on here at Werbergs is amazing. And we are so grateful to all of you, but blown away by God's provision and what he is doing in this place. It is utterly amazing. We need to change our perspective. Look at life. Look at our situation in a different way. Paul was in prison in Philippi. No, not in Philippi. Probably in Rome. Paul had desired to go to Rome for a lot of his uh, adult life. A lot of the time as a church planter, he longed to get to Rome. But he didn't think that he would get there in chains. He went through a shipwreck. He was bitten by a poisonous snake. He had to camp out on an island throughout the winter. He eventually got to Rome and he was put into house arrest. He was guarded 24 hours a day. He was never left alone. I have to be honest with you, if that was me, my perspective would have been very much centered around how rough my life is and how tough things are. But Paul's perspective was something different. He saw the bigger picture. He was in jail under Nero. And Nero isn't just a chain of coffee uh, places. Uh, Nero was one of the worst Caesars going. He was known for his brutality. But whilst Paul was in jail under Nero's watch, Nero's wife, Nero's mother, and Nero's children came to faith in Jesus Christ. The bigger picture, 
that Paul was able to shape in the midst of this was that he saw a greater perspective. Paul says that um, what has happened to him has helped to advance the gospel. This was the new perspective. Paul said that, um, uh, that what has happened to him will turn out for his own deliverance. His perspective was something bigger. And because he had a different perspective, his perspective changed other people's perspective. When he says that because of what's happened to him, because of his chains, most of his brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. So his change of perspective helped change other people's perspective. Because perspective changes or produces hope. And hope produces joy. When you realize that God is working through your problems even when you can't see it or have no explanation for it, you have a hope and can be joyful even if the problem, as far as you can see it, is not the end of the story. Perspective produces hope. Hope produces joy. If we're going to live joy-filled lives, we need to have a big perspective. The second P Uh, that we uh, need to think about for a joy-filled life is priority. Priority is a difficult word for someone who can't say his R's very clearly, so I apologize. Priority. Joyful people have a priority that they live by. If you don't decide what's important for you and for your life, other people will do so straight away. We live in a world where we are constantly moved around and bombarded by culture. Things that tell us that you should look like this, be like this, act this way. That will tell you where your priority should be in life. Maybe it's politics. Maybe you're a a Brexiteer or a Remainer and you're thinking that's a priority. Maybe your priority is based around consumerism and the things that you have. Oh, I've got to have the new iPhone or whatever it might be. If you haven't worked out your priority yet, the other thing that will teach you it will be Instagram. Instagram, the the images that it produces, the pictures that it displays. Oh, no, you've got to look this way. You've got to be as attractive as this. You've got to have as many followers as that. You've got to do this. Is that really a priority to live by? Or are we just allowing our culture to dictate to us what our, our priority should be? Because If that is your priority, when you don't get that, when you don't get the likes and the follows and everything else, your world falls apart. (coughs) Joyful people have a priority to live by. Paul had a clear priority. Paul was criticized. He was in chains under house arrest and he was ruthlessly criticized. People would have had a go at him. They would have slammed him in what they were saying about him. And yet for Paul, he says, what does it matter? What is important? Whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. That was his priority. Clear, set goal. That's what his life had become about. He didn't retaliate. He didn't fight back. He didn't want to defend himself when other people were criticizing him or having a go about what his life was. He's like, it doesn't matter. The priority is that. That Jesus is preached. That the message that Jesus has come to earth to step into our mess, to live for us, to die for us, and to rise to new life. 
so that we can have forgiveness and no everlasting life, that we can be in relationship with God. For Paul, that was the priority. Who cares what their, the people's motivations was to say that and whether they wanted to slam Paul in the midst of it? He didn't mind. He was living a joy-filled life because his priority was set on Jesus. The third thing, the third P, we have perspective, we have priority, and then we have power. Joy-filled lives know that they need a power to fill those lives, that we cannot do it on our own. For Paul, he found power from two places, from the prayers of others. He said that I know that through your prayers, what has happened to me will be for my deliverance. He knows that the community, an authentic community, that's where he drew his power from. The second place he drew his power from was that not only was it the prayers of others, but God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, God's power in us. Acts 1 verse 8 You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That is the promise. In Philippians 4, uh, Paul goes on to say, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And in Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It is a present continual tense. Go on being filled with the Spirit because we get power from people's prayers and encouragements and support, but we also get power when God fills us with his Holy Spirit. Power to face each moment as it comes. Power to change. Power to change our perspective. Power to forgive others. Power to endure what we are going through. If we try to live this life in our own strength and in our own power, I'm afraid we will fail. We will burn out. But God's promise to us is that he will fill us with his Holy Spirit and we will receive power and be shaped because of it. Purpose. If we're going to live joy-filled lives, we need to have a clearly defined purpose in life, a purpose to live for. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's clear purpose in life was to be with Jesus. That's what it was all about for him. So to live means being in relationship with Jesus here and now. It means being able to talk about Jesus to the people around him. It means prayer. It means seeing miracles. It means being in relationship here and now, living out that relationship with Christ. But to die, to die is gain. Paul goes on to say, I desire to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far. Let that sink in for one moment. To die is gain, it is better by far. Death is not the end goal. Relationship, fullness of eternity with Jesus was Paul's purpose. 
And he knew that he could have a relationship with Jesus now, but that would come into fullness when he died, when he gets to heaven. To live is Christ. That is his purpose. People who don't live joy-filled lives live lives that are all about me. What will make me happy? How much money will I get? What about the relationships that please me? What about my pleasure? What about my things? The secret to joy, as Paul is telling us, is that it's all about Jesus. Make Jesus your priority. Others second and yourself last. That's where you'll find a joy-filled life. Perspective, priority, power, and purpose. So I ask you this evening, are you living with those four Ps? Are you living with a perspective, a bigger, bigger picture perspective? Or are you just living in each moment as it comes? Are you living with a priority? And I don't know what your priority was that Christ has preached. You might be a doctor or a student or an engineer or something, and actually your priority is being the best that you can be in that field. Are you living in power? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit so that you are living out your life in his power, not your own? Are you being supported by the prayers of the saints and the community around you? Are you living with a purpose that says Jesus first? You can have all of these things today. You can have all of these things this evening. You can be living a joy-filled life because the kingdom of God is not about what you eat or drink. It is about righteousness, being put right in your relationship with Jesus. It is about peace, again, something that comes from deep within, not just an absence of conflict. And you can have joy, joy deep down within you. And you can know that joy for yourself.